Hello, everyone, and welcome to this special staff edition of Inside LBUSD, the Laguna Beach Unified School District podcast. This episode features a conversation between our CTO, Mike Morrison, and a very special guest, Dr. Sonny Magana, about his reimagining of education through the creation of a highly reliable model for enhancing modern instructional practice with modern teaching and learning tools. He calls this the T3 framework for innovation, which organizes the use and impact of educational technology tools into a hierarchy of three domains, translational or T1, transformational or T2, and finally transcendent or T3. I think you guys are really going to enjoy this one. And now, Mike Morrison and Dr. Sonny Magana. Welcome, we're honored to have Sonny Magana here, Dr. Sonny Magana an award-winning teacher, pioneer in educational technology and researcher. And uh, he's written several books. One is Disruptive Classroom Technologies. Um, He's also introduced an amazing framework called the T3 Framework, which we'll talk about today. We're excited about uh, working with him. He's worked with some of the top researchers in education in the world, uh, Folin, Hattie, Marzano, and um, his research is really uh, pioneering a new way of thinking about education and technology. And we're excited to have him here. Welcome, Sonny. Well, thanks very much, Mike. It's really a pleasure to be here and enjoying my day immensely thus far. Okay, well, let's start out by asking you a question. In your third level of T3, you talk about wicked problems. And I thought, well, let's ask you, what's your wicked problem? And tell us about it and how you're going to solve it. I love it. It's a great, great way to start off. The wicked problem that I discovered early was um, ensuring that there was a quality education um, opportunity for all learners. And this happened when I was in um, my early years in teaching. I realized that you know we, we had a, a, an inequitable education system, um, and we have. Uh, Opportunity haves and opportunity have-nots. So the wicked problem that matters to me is ensuring that all learners, regardless of their location, their age, their ethnicity, their backgrounds, where they live, their zip code, have access to the highest quality, ample education experiences so that they can realize their potential. That's the wicked problem that, that, that I'm striving to solve. My big picture, my big why is ensuring that all learners have ample opportunity to learn how to become masterful learners now with current content and also building the capacity, the habits, the attitudes, the strategies, the mindset, mind frame really, uh, to solve new problems and identify problems that matter to them and prepare them for future learning. And we got to do both. Education is a really funny business because we, we have a, a kind of a twofold responsibility. We have to ensure that students are mastering learning currently, while at the same time, our learners are prepared to master future learning problems. We have no idea what those might look like. So that's what makes teaching so great and so hard. This is hard work. It's hard work. We really have to roll up our sleeves and get into the meat of the process of knowledge generation, not just knowledge transmission. So that's my wicked problem. <laughs> and it's been a wicked problem for 40 years. Great. I'm close to solving it. 
So with T3, you describe rock and roll mm -hmm. as having an influence on the T3 fra sure. framework <laughs> in, some, uh, in some way. So describe, like, what about rock and roll do you like and what, what about it do you, does it, you know, how did it influence you? Yeah, that's a, a, another, thank you, a really good question. I mean, my my, my uh, impulse is, gosh, what's not to like about rock and roll? <laughs> but, but here's why I like it so much is that um, when I was young, I, I was a, a dutiful student. You know, I, I, I wasn't a, um, a masterful student. I, I jumped through the hoops. I, I had teachers that were uh, really good at, at establishing uh, my goals for me, and uh, I would jump through the hoops, and I learned how to conform, and I learned how to play the game of schooling, which was I got really good at memorizing. You know, mm -hmm. it's something that, that I just worked at. I worked at uh, memorizing content. And so I thought schooling was a function of conforming to someone else's norms or someone else's objectives and be, and being respectful and dutiful and, and, and conforming. But schooling was very different from what I experienced as learning. So when I was uh, 14, I had my father's old silver tone guitar and Sears and Roebuck version <laughs> guitars and dusty old you know, nylon string guitar. And I really, really wanted to play it. I uh, really wanted to play uh, music from the time. It was Beatles music. Mm -hmm. And I, just, I was just hooked. As soon as I... You heard uh, Beatles music for the first time. I just was, oh my God, that's what I want to do with my life. You know? Is that is that a job option for me? Because I want that job. Uh, and but I would pretend to play the guitar with my my, my brother and sisters. Uh, we would pretend air to guitar, be, right? little air guitar. Well, yeah, but I actually had the actual guitars. But but I was pretending. It was like it was pretend air guitar. Um, and I thought it just seemed so out of my capacity to actually play and produce reproduce those sounds. I didn't think I could ever do it. And then one day I made a commitment. I heard John Lennon do an acoustic version of uh, Imagine. And that song had a lot of meaning for me personally. Um, uh, it, the the uh, traditional version is, is a piano piece, but he did a, a, a live version in New York on acoustic guitar. And it was so beautiful, I just felt compelled to reproduce that sound for my mom. So I learned how to play those chords. I learned how to play the guitar. And I applied strategies that I'd never tried before, which was, what if I do this? What if I do this? What if I try this strategy? What if I... So I started learning about my own ability to learn by learning how to play that song. And one summer uh, in South Jersey, I spent the whole summer in the backyard just, you know, getting calluses in my fingers my fingers were bleeding you know I it just it didn't feel comfortable it was all cramped but then at the end of the summer I played the song all the way through without any mistakes I sang my heart out and my mom loved it brought her to tears and I thought that's the first time I really learned something and something awakened within me that was um, I finally felt that I had the capacity to learn whatever I wanted to learn that's powerful yeah and I just have taken what I experienced learning to play the guitar and applied it to, uh, to my studies. And I became a far more effective learner. So around that time, this is, um, you know, I've been going for in high school playing with little uh, bands, little groups of kids around the campfire and, and just rocking out in the Jersey Pine Barrens camping around uh, uh, the South Jersey area where I lived. And then something happened. <laughs> I heard Van Halen 1. Mm -hmm. <laughs> 
And there was 90 seconds in that album. It was an A-track, actually. It was my friend Paul Delavecchi's car. He had a Super B, and we drove it down to the uh, uh, to Wildwood in the Jersey Shore. And he said, you got to listen to this. And he pumped in the, uh, the uh, tape, and he played Eruption. Mm-hmm. And that... That track, those 90 seconds, left an indelible mark on me because I had no idea that those kinds of sounds could be made from a guitar. It just rocked my world. It just really was like a swift kick to the head. And I thought, how does he do that? And I just became a Van Halen you know, devotee. Uh, and I heard him on a local radio station uh, in Philadelphia area, which was, we were in the Philadelphia market. And uh, the radio station was WMMR. And uh, the DJ was John DeBella, who's still out there. So John, thank you. Um, he had Eddie Van Halen on as a guest. And he asked Eddie, do you have any advice for budding guitarists in the Delaware Valley? And to his credit, Eddie Van Halen, Eddie Van Halen said, yes, I do. And he said, kids, this is your uncle Eddie speaking. If you're learning how to play the guitar, you're probably at the stage where you're using open chords and you're translating what you're hearing on the radio onto your six string guitar and sitting around the campfire, strumming open chords and playing. So that's great. If that's your doing, keep doing that. Every great guitarist has gone through that stage. He said, I call it the campfire stage. But if you wanna get better, you gotta know there's another stage. He said, I call that the Chuck Berry stage. You gotta learn how to rock out like Chuck. You gotta learn how to play all those riffs and all those pentatonic scales, up and down the neck. You need to be able to be so fluid with that that you are not even thinking, you're feeling your way through playing. He said, every great guitarist has gone through the Chuck Berry phase, but you're not done there. There's another phase, which is where you are inventing your own form of music. You're playing your own expression. You're using your emotionality and your consciousness to produce something that no one ever has done before. You find your own sound. Find your own voice. And I was 15 years old, 14, 15 years old, and I thought, oh my God, Eddie's talking directly to me. <laughs> you know? I thought, I'm at the campfire stage. How does he know? How does he know? Uh, and that just put me on a, um, a course of being more intentional about my musicality, about my learning, about my guitar playing, and I still use the Eddie Van Halen framework. That's the first time I ever used a f- learning framework to help me organize my own understanding. And th- this can't be overstated, really. Frameworks help us make sense of complex phenomena. They just do. They, they help generate meaning from the complexities that we experience in life. And this is the first time I'd ever used a learning framework. And that is exactly the inspiration for the T3 framework for learning. Okay. Well, let's talk. I, this is fascinating because I think uh, we often think about learning as something that's given to us, you right. know, or as uh, pushed on us mm-hmm. sometimes. And with your experience, you were seeing it more as something you could um, own. Yes. And I think that's a big difference. So with the, the learning framework you developed, I know it's research-based, so you, mm-hmm. st- you did meta-studies or you researched uh, other studies and came up with concepts that would be in- effective in each level. Yeah. And what, so let's, let's talk about T1, the first level, that, which is equivalent to, you know, you're playing the guitar, yeah, the but you're copying, right? Yeah, you're, you're copying, just, yeah. Uh, how would that look in a classroom? 
Yeah, so at the T1 level, trans, I call that translational learning. And this is true of any learning experience for anybody at any age. When we're first exposed to new content information, it doesn't make sense. It, there's some chaos, you know, because we don't understand all the words. We don't understand the facts. We don't know the facts. We don't know the concepts. We're still learning them. So it exists as sort of a fuzzy, mm -hmm. you know, just seemingly out of reach, much the same way that the concept of learning how to play Imagine seemed really out of reach for me. But once you start translating external information into your internal neural network, by that I mean I'm taking new, in new words, I'm taking in new facts, new ideas, applying it. Now I'm taking an external source and internalizing it. I'm making it my own. Because we all have an internal dialogue. We all have an internal way that we experience and understand the world around us. That phase of translating from some external source to our own internal consciousness uh, can be enhanced by technologies so that we can more expediently have kids learn new facts, new academic vocabulary first, new facts and details, and new ideas or concepts, and interact with them by automating tasks and having kids consume digital information from a digital source as opposed to an analog source so that we, we have access to a greater variety of information, multimedia information, multi-sensory information, and we do it in a way that saves time and increases efficiency. And that's the translational learning phase. It's the starting point. So it's not bad to be in that phase. No, it's necessary. So it's necessary. So it, it can level up, though. Like you could yeah. use that some of that phase to help you in T2, which exactly. is described T2. So. Yeah. And, and just the same way, you know, every great guitarist has gone through the campfire phase. Every highly effective teacher in the digital age goes through the translational learning phase because that's the starting point. But then we need to go realize that there's another phase. There's another um, milestone where the student becomes the center of the experience, not the teacher, not the information, not the assessment, but the learner. And in the T2 domain, it's the transformational learning. That's in a way, one can say that you know Chuck Berry kind of transformed the music of uh, the Delta uh, area, the blues, soul, gospel, and transformed it into the genre that we now call rock and roll. He didn't do it single-handedly. Many, many others that were that were part of this process. But he took something, some form, and made it his own. He kind of transformed it. So in the transformational phase of learning, students take that internal information that they've they've translated into their own internal consciousness, and they do something with it. They produce a representation. They express what they know or what they can do, and more importantly, how they came to know or be able to do those things. It's the journey that they make manifest using digital tools to express and represent their learning, express and represent their, their new knowledge, either procedural or declarative knowledge, and the journey that took them there. That's a transformational experience because um, when students produce things, they're no longer passively consuming, but actively producing knowledge representations for, uh, to demonstrate their knowledge to their, their teachers, but also to teach others what they know. Good. So with that level, can you think of an example, like a real life example where kids have done that? Yeah. Yeah. Um, that in the transformational uh, domain, there are two principles, the principle of production and the principle of contribution. When students are producing representations of knowledge, they 
are essentially teaching their teachers what they know. If you think of it that way, you know, uh, mm -hmm. I, I was really fortunate to learn from and work with uh, Seymour Papert um, uh, in the early uh, 90s where I, I developed the cyber school model and I had a series of meetings with Seymour and he just like, really changed my thinking about, about teaching and learning. He said, you know, kids need to produce things. You need to, he was a constructionist. So when students construct models or, or representations of their learning, they're actually teaching in that process of, of developing some Lego brick or a Lego doctor or a Lego robot or, or uh, you know, some physical thing. But it doesn't have to be physical. It could also be um, a, a video. It could be uh, a dance. It could be a sonnet. It could be a poem. It doesn't have to be something in writing. It could be a representation uh, that could be a tutorial. The second principle is contribution. So I've got folks all over the, the country having kids create tutorials using readily available tools like Screencastify or uh, Flipgrid or uh, a number of tools that allow kids to create video tutorials to teach each other what they know. And a great example is here in, in uh, California. Eric Marcos is at, um, I think, Lincoln Middle School in Santa Monica. And he and his students have a wonderful uh, exemplar of contributive learning called mathtrain.tv. So his fifth grade kids are teaching the world math. It's fantastic. It's a beautiful thing. It yeah, really beautiful. is. And they're contributing. So that's a, one of numerous examples of children um, teaching the world. So at that level, do students get to pick which technology and what, how to represent their knowledge? Yeah, And why absolutely. is that important? Yeah, you know, student choice is really important because there's no one size fits all for learning. I think, I think that's, we can say that really clearly. Everybody has their own unique pathways uh, to uh, translate information, to transform that information, and then make that information known. So giving students choice honors their own individual pathway. And it gives them the opportunity to select how to best express and represent themselves. And that's one of the UDL principles, actually, of expression and representation of their learning. It, it nurtures our hearts and nurtures our heads. You know, we have, we have kind of a two-sided mind. We have a cognitive mind and an emotional mind. And when students are able to choose things that um, can best represent what they know and what they can do, um, it closes a cycle and, and makes kids feel really good, not only about the learning, but about their ability to learn. So giving kids ample choices is essential. Great. Now, T3 is my favorite. I, I just love this concept <laughs> of, of having our students really think through what are the wicked problems. Yeah. And what are just general problems, you know, that we have? They could be smaller, but mm -hmm. that they're actually trying to solve something or do something productive. Yeah. So why, why did you uh, accompany that with social entrepreneurship? And like, yeah. what, what's your, what's your uh, thought process on adding that to these levels? Like, what, what were you thinking? Well, it, you know, um, it's a really great question. And when I, when I think back about you know, developing this, this framework, I did not intend to come up with a T3 framework. That was not something that was predetermined. Um, rather, I'd just been engaging in this research for so long, I thought, okay, I, I gotta put this into some sort of a model. And what is the research telling me? What are the strategies that are the most impactful? And how can I take those strategies and put them into 
a cohesive form so that students can master current learning. And that's what the, the T2 transformational phase helps students become masterful learners of current learning content, content they're learning at the moment. But that's not enough. So it didn't seem complete. I needed something to, to um, uh, kind of hang this idea that the purpose of education is not just to help kids master current learning, but also to help kids master future learning in ways that we, we can't be there 30, 20, 10 years down the track. But we need to be able to ensure that our students are able to know what to do when they don't know what to do. And that's where the transcendent idea came in. So I was, this sounds arrogant, and so I apologize at the beginning. I, I, I don't mean this to sound arrogant, but I was really thinking, what is a pedagogy that will serve kids for the next 500 years? Mm -hmm. Yep. <laughs> you know, which I know I'm going to fail, but I'm going to try it anyway. Uh, so what do kids need? And I think they need to be able to identify problems, not just solve problems that are handed to them, but explore the complexity of the world around them and identify a wicked problem that matters to them through the process, a principle that I call inquiry design, which is really a way of uh, sequencing the scientific method in a real world context. And it goes like this, in inquiry design, students identify some wicked problem that matters to them, whether it's quality education, which is my wicked problem, um, uh, global climate disruption, maybe um, uh, more equitable societies, uh, uh, gender inequality may be a problem you know, for, that, that matters to a kid. There's no shortage of wicked problems that kids care about. Um, but they need to be able to apply a methodology to identify a problem, investigate what's known about that problem, generate a problem statement, and iteratively imagine ever more robust solutions to that problem. And so the next principle in the transcendent learning I call social entrepreneurship, which is a mashup of, as you say, social justice and entrepreneurial thinking. So that students are learning that their, their, their knowledge gain isn't an end to itself, but it's a means to make the world a more socially just, place for all. So social justice really looms large in my thinking, but we need to be able to help kids recognize that you can build human capital and still be financially responsible. And I think that's the, the essence of the new economies of sustainability, where students are doing good and doing it in a way that's financially responsible. I saw one uh, school district in Australia, mm. they had social um, capital as one of their yeah. key features of their district. Like yeah. students were working on that uh, topic and trying to enhance their abilities in, in that. Mm -hmm. Do you think that's an, how, how does that relate to what we're doing here? Like, you know, that kind of yeah. capital? Yeah, no, I, I think that's, it's really important. And, and uh, making the world a better place, making improvements to the world, which I think is, is the point here. We want students to be able to be contributive citizens to a, a, a globally connected, interdependent world of which they're a part and that they can make a contribution. That's what helps kids recognize that they are only limited by the limitations they place on themselves. 
And so social capital to you, would it also mean like their network, their yes. social network? Yeah, absolutely. And building that out? Building that out locally and globally. And I'll give you a great example. Uh, I worked with a school, Lemon Grove uh, Elementary School, and a shout out to the principals there, Carla, Dr. Carla uh, um, Toffler Aranda and uh, Rick Oser. Uh, they've become dear friends and I just love working with them. I implemented this work before the book came out. Uh, on T3, and so I introduced the students in that school at Lemon Grove uh, uh, Academy, the elementary school uh, in Lemon Grove, and talked to them about wicked problems and guided them through the, the six-stage process of identifying, investigating, and imagining solutions. And the group of fifth graders said, you know, or no, so I think there were fourth graders, the problem that mattered to them was that, and get this, they, they said, we think the problem that matters the most to us is there's not enough kindness in the world. Mm -hmm. I said, tell me more. I said, well, we see kids in the, in the playground, and sometimes kids don't have any friends, and kids are mean to one another, and there's just not enough kindness in our school. So if there's not enough kindness in our school, maybe there's not enough kindness in the world. And I said, well, what do you think you can do about it? I said, well, maybe we can make our school a kinder place. And I said, well, tell me how you might do that. So they went and brainstormed, and they came up with all these great ideas to, um, like they were handing out notes. Whenever they saw somebody engaging in a kind act, they would give a little post-it note, like you were kind today, a little hard on it. And then they captured all that on a wall in the classroom. They had to identify, well, what, what is kindness? So they made a, a wall explaining what kindness is, what does it look like, what does it feel like, how do we celebrate it, how do we improve it. They, they uh, organized themselves, they gave themselves a name. They called themselves the kindness crew. And they went around giving out tickets, and the kids were wondering, what's going on? How, what is this all about? It made such a difference. Uh, then they also worked with um, their teacher and uh, uh, the local school board to um, uh, raise some funds. So they wrote letters. They wrote a letter-writing campaign uh, to raise funds for something called a buddy bench which I, I didn't know what that was about. I didn't, I didn't know anything about uh, a buddy bench, but apparently it's an organization that um, will provide a bench. It's in lime green, um, and it's a, it's a symbol. So when somebody's not feeling great, when they feel like they need a friend or a buddy, they can sit on the bench, and it's a nonverbal cue to everyone else that a student is not having a good day and they need some support. They need some mental, emotional support from friends. So the kids did it. And they created a body bench, they, they raised the funds, they, they helped imp, uh, install the bench. And that's a great example of a local problem that has global ramifications. So now those kids are in um, high school and they still identify as the kindness crew and they're still going out doing acts of kindness and celebrating kindness. And that's an empowered learner. Yes, definitely. So you, that project focused on social emotional health. Absolutely. Um, how does T3 in general improve social emotional health as a, as a framework? Like if, if a student experienced these levels, how would that impact them social emotionally? Yeah, it, I'm so glad that um, the, we, we are now having honest conversations about social and emotional learning uh, in schools. It's, it's, it's about time. Um, I've worked mostly in alternative education. Uh, that's my background is in mostly special education, alternative education, where it's just a part of our thinking. You know, that's just uh, special education teachers and alternative teachers out there. You know what I'm talking about. This is, and not saying that it's not in 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 general ed, but it's a real focus because uh, our our students have needs that are um, um, just at a higher level 
than, uh, than general ed, generally speaking. Um, and so in the T3 framework, I built in some uh, capacity for kids to monitor their emotional state. See, and I think we feel our way through learning before we think our way through learning journeys. You know? Mm -hmm. If we feel welcome, if we feel secure, if we feel safe, we're more likely to take cognitive risks. But how do we know if a student, how they feel? The best way is to help students um, reflect upon their learning. So I built a tool called the Magania Mastery Tracker. And the goal is to help students engage in self-regulation, which I would argue is a, um, a goal of social and emotional learning, is being able to regulate one's emotional state so that one can make the best decision in a moment, given their awareness of their emotional condition and the cognitive conditions. Um, this tool really helps students engage in strategies for self-regulation. And one of the strategies that I, I share and talk about also is breath regulation. You know, helping kids engage in focused, rhythmic, diaphragmatic breathing. Breathing from the diaphragm has such a benefit um, that this, it's a strategy that kids can use. Uh, when the volume gets too high or they feel anxious or they're stressed and they just can't learn. They're, they're physiologically incapable of engaging in higher order learning until they lower the volume and stay calm and be present. So in the T3 framework are these tools to help kids engage in emotional regulation, which I think is tantamount to social and emotional learning applied. And then, then engage in the heavy lifting. So it's part of a theory I have called contributive learning theory. And it goes like this. Emotion conditions motivation. Our emotional state conditions how much motivation we have to engage in learning. If emotion conditions motivation, I'd submit that motivation conditions cognition. We're only able to think deeply about learning if we have the requisite energy, the motivation, the, the, in, the um, willingness to engage in heavy lifting of, of, of deep learning. So emotion conditions motivation, motivation conditions cognition, and cognition conditions contribution. The more we know and the more we learn, the more compelled we are to teach others what we know. And that little, or, that system is uh, designed to improve well-being. Because they have a purpose, history. right? Because so of the purpose. Yep. Yeah. Would you say this has a big impact on teachers uh, yeah. and how they feel about them as a professional? Like some of the studies I've seen show that teachers feel isolated. 70% of them said that they don't feel connected to other teachers yeah. in, in the yeah. district. Um, how would T3 kind of help that? Yeah, it's another great question. And, and if an individual just uses T3 in their classroom, they're going to get great results. Uh, the, the, the impact, we'll talk about that in a moment, but the research shows some really uh, uh, profound impact in learning. But that's just one off. We learn better together. That's an essence of contributive learning theory. We learn better together than in isolation. So when teachers engage in professional learning community conversations around T3, around implementing these strategies, evaluating them, gathering leading indicators of data, leading indicators of, of, of learning, and analyze that data and then implement it as a team, then that has a residual effect 
on the well-being and mastery of the teachers involved in the process, the coaches involved in the process, the TOSAs, the administrators, the leaders, who are all having the same conversations uh, and the same experiences that has a, a collective impact on the well-being and mastery of the teachers and administrators and coaches that are involved in the process. And that's something that um, I, I have to say, I, I, I was thinking more about the impact on learners. So this is a very happy coincidence that teachers that are implementing T3 are happier mm-hmm. and they're more content because they're seeing the results of, of their work. Of right? their work. Mm-hmm. And that's intrinsically motivating. Now, I know you have uh, several books you're working on, mm-hmm. and one of them uh, about learning in the zone. Yeah. And I thought we could kind of finish up sure. talking about like, what does that mean, learning in the zone? And what, what is the zone? That's a great question. Where, where is the zone? <laughs> is, it, is it a place? Yeah, it is. It, it is. It's a place. And it's in our hearts and our minds. You know, uh, we talk about the zone in, in athletics. And most, you know, um, sports people will know what I'm talking about. When, you know, Tiger Woods was in the zone when he just, you know, couldn't miss that, you know, the, 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 the whole. Uh, I, I, in my book, I, I talk about uh, Bill Bradley, senator from New Jersey, uh, who wrote about... Um, a series of six blind turnaround jump shots that he sunk nothing but net as a, as a New York Knicks. And he said, man, I was just in the zone. I felt like I couldn't miss. Mm-hmm. The basket looked as large as a trash can. And no matter what I did, and a turnaround blind jump shot is one of the hardest shots because you, you, you start with your back to the bucket, you know? But he sunk them and he said, yeah, I was just in the zone, man. I just couldn't, couldn't miss. And I thought, is there such a thing of learning in the zone. And musicians talk about learning in the pocket or or in the groove. When you're in the groove, man. Like a flow, right? Yeah, you're in the flow. All things are working and you you just don't have any hesitation. You're just, you're listening deeply to your bandmates and improvising based on kind of a call and answer response. That's a beautiful thing. And when when you're in the moment, when you're in the groove, you know it and you feel like you just can't miss. Was there such a thing or such a concept in, in learning? Turns out there is. Turns out there is. Uh, Mihaly Csikszentmihalyi wrote this wonderful book called Flow, and he talked about the flow experience where, you know, you're just, you're, the task that you're doing is just beyond your reach. It's just hard enough that it's worth doing. It's not too easy. It's not too hard. You get immediate feedback on how well you're doing the task. You lose track of time. And you kind of experience this ecstasy. You're sort of standing outside yourself experiencing this learning. Turns out there is such a thing in the learning experience. And I've identified seven habits. And that's the subtitle of the book is the seven habits, seven habits of meta learners. So I designed this as a way to think of these learning strategies. And when, when learners implement some of those strategies, then over time they become habits. And a habit is something that we do with a level of automaticity. You don't have to think too hard mm-hmm. about it. And so not only is it possible, but I've got great evidence showing that when learners develop these seven habits, they become limitless learners. And they re-engage, reignite that uh, innate love of learning, which I think is a birthright. And the first habit, not surprisingly, starts with commitment. You've got to commit. Without hesitation. I'm going to play that song. Imagine, right? <laughs> Imagine, yeah. yeah. I said I'd started. I really wanted to do it. And I committed. Nothing was going to stop me. Too often, though, students are given standards or learning objectives or external, external objectives, but they don't own them. 
So who owns the learning? Whoever commits. Who gave it to him. Yeah, yeah. Well, at yeah. that point, who gave yeah. it to him? <laughs> who gave it to him, right. Um, so with flow, I know there's tremendous health benefits yes. with people that experience flow on a regular basis. Yeah. Are you thinking the zone is the same concept? Absolutely. Yeah, the, the learning zone is something that's fluid and it can, you can take with you anywhere you go. Um, but it's, it's a mental and, a, and emotional construct. And you have to believe in yourself. And this is the beauty of, of this work, because I think it, it um, lends itself to uh, building collective student efficacy, where students believe they can and will learn anything mm -hmm. to mastery by going about and believing it it's and making meaningful experiences ever more meaningful. When we look at T3, to me it sounds different than PBL. Mm. But I kind of want your perspective. What is the difference between like a typical PBL project and a T3 wicked mm. problem project? Yeah, yeah. I think a good way to frame it is that PBL is almost like T3 light. It's a starting point. And that's not bad. You, you want to have a starting point where the investigation, the inquiry is scaffolded. You have to start with a lot of scaffolds, a lot of guidance, and a lot of support. So in, in PBL activities, students are generally given projects by teachers to explore with set parameters and the problem, if there is a problem, it's given to them. And that's important. Kids need to start solving problems where there's a well-defined parameters of the problem, well-defined constraints, and, and, and uh, a solution that is readily available. But just as importantly, I think we need to take students to the next step where they start to identify problems on their own without the guidance. And that's sort of like the gradual release idea where you start some learning with lots of guidance, lots of scaffolds, and little by little you take those training wheels away and let students more freely associate. So at the T1 transcendent level, students and don't have any training wheels. We have the capacity to help kids identify wicked problems that matter to them, investigate them, generate a problem statement, and then imagine solutions to those problems. So it's sort of like the next step after PBL that's driven by student passion and purpose. And when a student's passion pilot light is lit, it will never go out. Awesome. <laughs> uh, is there anything else you want to let us know about? Uh, yeah, I, you know, uh, I, I'm, I'm really fortunate to work with uh, some wonderful colleagues uh, uh, that uh, are informing my journey, you know, because I'm, I'm, you know, I'm at the stage where most people retire, you know, and, and yet I told my wife, you know, honey, I, I think my best work is in front of me, not behind me, okay. <laughs> you know, which you know, uh, is, is funny to know what's up. But, but I think the, the work that I'm doing now uh, is just really exciting. I'm just really fortunate to have met some great people like Marlena Heburn and, and uh, John Carippo, uh, Chris Bell. So we've organized a little a group, a kind of a co-op where... Um, of course, Marlene and John developed these edge protocols, which are wonderful learning frames. And we met, thanks to another uh, mutual friend, Jay Sorensen, shout out to Jay from Oxnard Union High School District, who's just a wonderful guy and is a T3 champion. He introduced me to, to John. And it was literally like that Reese's peanut butter cup <laughs> commercial <laughs> where we, we ran into each other at ISTE uh, in uh, 2018, I think, or maybe it was 2017, my book had just come out. And he said, 
hey man, you got your framework all over our learning frames. <laughs> and I think I literally said, hey man, you got your learning frames all over my learning framework. <laughs> so we decided to combine this work and so we've developed this, um, this uh, um, organization called the Edu Innovation League, where we're combining the, the, new the new pedagogy of T3 with these awesome learning frames that are Edu protocols. And together, the, the whole is different than the sum of its parts. So it, it's just, it, it's better together. And we're really thrilled to um, do some uh, uh, activities. In fact, we're having a, a summer T3 Edge Protocols Academy uh, in the area, and we're really excited. So more about that uh, coming on eduinnovationleague.com. Uh, and we've got a whole variety of books and professional learning experiences and online labs to help share this work uh, all over the world. And so I'm really excited about that. And I think we can say where, what, where it's going to be because yeah. we're in Laguna Beach. So at El Moro Elementary School. And yes. So that'll be a great opportunity for our teachers to yeah. participate in that, in those uh, protocols and T3 framework. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we're really grateful about that. It's such a beautiful spot, and uh, it's going to be an exciting uh, summer camp for, for educators and leaders. Great. Thanks, Sunny. If a teacher wants to get started with this and they want more information, where should they look? Where are the places you would send them? Uh, I think the first place would be to go to my website, my organization, Magani Education, and it's just uh, maganieducation.com. That's M-A-G-A-N-A education.com. I've got tons of resources and white papers and research and content on implementing T3, uh, where they can get the book, Disruptive Classroom Technologies, and any of the work that I'm doing. But also another website is eduinnovationleague.com. So it's eduinnovationleague.com for more information on the T3 Edge Protocols work that is brand new. Thank you for coming. We really appreciate it. And uh, you've really informed my thinking in this. So and as of late, I've been reading your book and I really enjoyed it. And I think that uh, our district is considering how we would apply some of these principles. So it's been very uh, eye-opening. I, I really appreciate the work that you've done. And uh, thank you. Yeah, thank you kindly. It's really a pleasure to be here. Thank you for listening to this special staff edition of Inside LBUSD. If you have any questions or comments, please feel free to reach out to Mike. There will be more information forthcoming on opportunities to enhance existing units with these concepts in mind. So keep your eyes open for that. And as always, we hope you have a great week.